welcome all. Uh, thank you for carving out a little time from this damp, grisly pre-election evening. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I suspect that I see some of you here uh, are very well acquainted with the Library Company, but just for those of you who are not part of the initiated class, we were founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731, uh, and we've uh, become a fabulous independent research library uh, that gives out between 55 and 60 research fellowships a year, um, including this year, this unusual year, uh, which we're trying to address to. We have specializations in um, early Americana, print culture, visual culture, women's history, and African-American history. And we are not currently open for researchers, but we hope to be sometime in the spring, provided that the COVID numbers decrease at some point. In the meantime, though, you're always welcome to reach out to our curatorial staff with any questions that you might have. Glenda Goodman is our presenter today. Glenda, if you're around, I invite you to turn on your video camera and rejoin us here. Hi there. I'm gonna very briefly introduce her and then I'm gonna pass it over. So Dr. Glenda Goodman is an assistant professor of music at the University of Pennsylvania, where she works on the history of early American music, as you will see. She publishes in musicology and history journals, and her research has been supported by the ACLS, the Institute of Advanced Studies, and other fellowships, including, and especially, the Library Company of Philadelphia in 2010. Dr. Goodman is currently working on a book on sacred music and colonial encounters in 18th century New England, as well as a collaborative project, American Con uh, excuse me, American Contact, Intercultural Encounter in the History of the Book, which will result in both a volume and a digital project. But today, she's here to discuss her first book, and it is fresh off the presses, published by Oxford University Press. What is it, in April, March? Uh, it is called Cultivated by Hand, Amateur Musicians in the Early American Republic. That's what we need to Thank you. I'm going to share my screen so you can see some slides that I've prepared. Um, good evening, everyone. Will, please interrupt me if anything goes awry with the screen share or anything like that. Um, so thank you to the Library Company of Philadelphia for inviting me and to Will, especially for hosting this and to all of you for attending. Um, this is quite a time to be uh, engaging uh, with anything in the world right now, but I hope that this hour together will give you a bit of, of a reprieve from, from whatever it is that you've been dealing with in your week. And um, I'm grateful for the chance to get to talk about my book, which did come out this spring. Uh, it was delayed a little bit uh, by COVID um, and then had to be sort of kept in its, the copies were kept in the OUP warehouse in North Carolina for a while until it was safe for people to get in there and work and ship them, but now it is here, it exists, and I couldn't be more pleased about that. So today, I'm, this evening, I'm talking about my book, uh, which is an amateur, it's a social and material history of amateur music making in early America. And in it, I focus on the first generation of women and men who were born during the revolution and came of age in the, uh, in the early years of the New Republic. Um, and it's about these musicians, but it's equally about their music book collections. It's a material book history. Um, and uh, the reason for that is because these amateurs um, copied out music by hand. So that's the, the cultivated by hand part of the title is partly about this handwork. 
Um, so what I'm going to do this evening is uh, do a combination of extemporaneous speaking while looking at slides, but then also some reading from text so that I don't blather on and on. Uh, and some of this uh, will give you a sense of what the style of the book is like. Hundreds of amateur musicians copied music into blank books in early America. I've identified about 250 uh, manuscript volumes that were created in the Northeast United States between the years of about 1750 and 1820. And these books vary quite widely, as you can see. Some of them are just a few leaves of hand-ruled paper, flimsily sewn together, uh, but others are large leather-bound folios of pre-ruled music paper. Some of these books are entirely sacred music, like this volume of hymns, while others have secular songs with keyboard accompaniment or are full of tunes for solo instruments like the violin, which is what you're looking at here. The level of skill varies as well. Some of these uh, beautiful volumes display exquisite penmanship and bespeak a rather accomplished musician, while others show how amateurs struggled. So I set out to understand how these books came to be and what they meant to the people who made them. The books clearly took hours and hours to create. And this is a time in which printed music was available, although it was fairly expensive. So I wondered when I first started to encounter these materials, what this effort that women and men expended can tell us about labor, about musical labor, hand labor, manual labor, and the material labor. Many of the people who made these books uh, by hand were women. So I also wondered about the connection to gendered handwork. Um, I also wondered how people acquired the materials, how they got the blank books or the, or the printed music paper. What did, what did this tell us about consumerism and music's uh, status as a luxury, uh, luxury commodity in the early Republic? The repertoire in these books, of course, tells us a lot. Uh, it tells uh, a lot of it uh, was fashionable concert music that was imported from Europe and particularly England. And so that made me wonder about musical taste and self-fashioning in the early national period. And then finally, these books uh, were clearly meant to be shared. There's lots of indications inside them that they were passed around socially or were used for music. So this led me to investigate exactly that sociability and attachment, intimate attachment looked like through, this, uh, through these music books and the performances they facilitated. These manuscript books tell us that making music wasn't just a matter of learning to play an instrument or sing a song. It had this material, physical, tactile component. With the phrase cultivated by hand, I tend to capture this multifaceted quality of what these people did, what these amateurs did, they make, because they made music that they could hear and they also made these music books that we can still see and touch. These manuscript books and the people who made them allow me to show how this kind of music making helped to construct a distinct American identity in this post-revolutionary period for this particular class of people. Um, and this is something I explore across the book because this is an identity that's multifaceted as well. These people pre present themselves musically as being pious and erudite and disciplined and genteel and cosmopolitan. These were all treasured traits. These are personal traits. And I document these traits and how they were cultivated through music 
by zeroing in on a cast of characters of six women and three men, all of whom were white, and I traced their lives and experiences throughout the book. Uh, in terms of, uh, I'll just mention one of the academic scholarly reasons I wanted to do this, and that's because this is a category of musician who has typically been overlooked by musicologists, and I'm a musicologist. The form of amateurism I uncover became increasingly gendered in the 19th century. And as you might expect, the more fully it was associated with women, the less seriously it was taken. So recentering uh, their musical contributions, these amateurs contributions was one of my goals um, because it helpfully uh, reminds us that making music for the sake of pleasure and self-fashioning rather than for the sake of professionalization or composing also matters. Pleasure and self-fashioning matter, not because it tells a nice story about music's importance to people, or not just, um, but also because in these people's behavior and the way they spent time and earned money and worked in their beliefs, their tastes, all of these components are captured in their interest in music. And in those behaviors, they were also shaping the world around them, the early national world. So one of the key points of this book is uh, that I argue is that amateur music making played an important and heretofore unacknowledged role in the making of gender and class and race and nation in this period. The reason I wanted this portrait on my cover of the book uh, is because it, it depicts this aspirational self-presentation of the amateurs that I wrote about. It captures a moment of the young woman's artful labor as she uh, draws or maybe copies music in front of her keyboard. Her eyes placidly meeting our gaze with confidence and maybe a small touch of demureness. And with the hint of antiquity in the column behind her, uh, it, this echoes the Ampere style of her dress. And the interior's dark, darkly colored and opulent textiles uh, richly frame her golden hair and her gleaming white dress and skin. And all of this, uh, this gentility, this uh, affluence, um, and this whiteness and purity and uh, respectability and accomplishment, this is an image that these amateurs that I was that I studied and wrote about uh, sought to cultivate, and it was not one that happened naturally, it took work. So I seek to understand in this book how this um, image and how these practices came about. So that's an overview of what my goals were. And now I'm going to just uh, talk a little bit about um, some of the music technologies that went into, or the, the, reproduct, the, the technologies, uh, technologies of reproducing music by hand or by print that these amateurs um, participated in. So this is drawn uh, from material from the first chapter of the book. So all the technologies of music reproduction relied in some way on individuals laboring bodies. That's the big premise of this first chapter. In the print and book trade, those individuals whose laboring bodies mattered included the type founder, the engraver, the compositor, the publisher, and the pressman, as well as those who manufactured the paper and bound the books. And of course, in my case in particular, um, the copyist, the, the person copying out music. Amateurs' contributions to the broader book ecology became more apparent, become more apparent when we understand the connections and differences between copying music by hand and these other available modes of music reproduction. And uh, I found that focusing on technologies overlapping aesthetic qualities, 
really helps to bring those similarities and differences into view. And moreover, when we analyze technologies mutually influencing aesthetic or visual um, traits, we can see how this, the, the visual presentation of the amateur's music manuscripts really mattered. They were very self-consciously done. Amateurs experimented with the design elements ingrained in music reproduction technologies in particular. They manipulated the appearance of manuscript and, uh, in order to provide themselves with an outlet for self-display, revealing a desire, a desire to make personal taste externally evident. And this is somewhat akin to maybe wearing a fashionable hat, but also it's like uh, embroidering a beautiful um, and tasteful sampler. By locating this small space for self-expression uh, while remaining bound to the aesthetic conventions and available material resources they had at hand, amateurs thus were able to exploit manuscript technology in ways that were both playful and earnest. This is of course in a time when uh, print saturation was ubiquitous. So this is the 18th century is a, an age of print and the commercial music print trade was quite robust in the early American Republic. Um, and it expanded particularly here where I am in Philadelphia, but also in New York, Boston and Baltimore while provincial publishers uh, farther from the coasts also procured music, uh, printing presses and issued tune books. The two most common ways to print music before the 19th century were typography and engraving. And um, you can see examples of those here, and I'll show another example shortly. Um, and uh, one of the things, what I'm interested in, in typography and engraving is how they both still require some sort of manual or handwork. So for typographic music printing, uh, individual pieces of type depicting single notes uh, were set into forms and pressed into the paper. This is an image of, um, from uh, my institution of pen uh, with, uh, that's Gutenberg holding a little A type piece of A. And then this is a type specimen book. This was something that printers could uh, purchase, uh, gives them an advertisement for what, for the um, sets of type they could purchase in order to print music. So this is like a catalog from a catalog. So uh, alternately, uh, engraving uh, was a, another uh, common technology that I found um, being used in early America. And uh, for that, an entire page of music was carved onto the surface of copper plate. And the final outcome looks different. You have these beautiful, smooth, continuous lines because they're all, they're all handwritten onto the, or hand carved onto the page. Um, and a telltale impression of the plate left on the edge of the paper. But even as these two um, printing technologies were very common in the period that I write about, um, manuscript music practice, manuscript copying practices persisted, even though there was this glut of print. And uh, writing by, this is partly because writing by hand was really practical. There was no technology more portable than a pen or quill and ink and paper. And um, also it was more convenient for some written genres like letters and diaries, obviously. Um, and it was preferred in many cases to, um, to printed music because it also had this personal and private um, aspect. And this preference for copying and, or for writing by hand rather than just always disseminating by print is really quite evident with the large corpus of manuscript music books that circulated, that were made and circulated in the 18th century. Interestingly, the, interestingly, though, in the late 18th century, we start to see how printed uh, conventions start to find their way into manuscript music books. 
And I'll show you what I mean by that. So with this example by uh, Lucy Sheldon, who lived in Litchfield, Connecticut, um, we see Lucy here um, experimenting with various styles of print-inspired handwriting. So at times she's imitating Roman or Italic script, as, and also you can see in the regular spacing and the clear bracketing uh, and the carefully differentiated grace notes found in um, all of these are tropes that she would have uh, learned from looking at sheet music. So we see this in this piece of this song, O Sing Sweet Bird, uh, by the English composer Joseph Masingi. This was part of a broader trend in which copyists were following print conventions. For instance, we can see, uh, see this again, um, not just about music, inside flyleaf of the Cops volume of um, music, which shows the convention of print because of the way in which he describes this as a collection. He gives it a title page, a collection of music um, that he even gives a sort of date or almost a publication date. And I saw other, other examples of these with um, amateurs sort of announcing the initiation of their volume or the sort of its appearance in the world. So borrowing from that publishing and print convention, but using it in manuscript. So as I was looking at these, I, all of these music books, um, I sought to understand the musical practices that they represent as well. And I became very interested in how manuscript and other technologies represent forms of physical labor and also expertise as people became physically adroit with writing manuscript music because it's something you would have to practice. I became interested in how the degree to which human presence could be de depict, uh, detectable on the page of music and that the degree really varies. So in handwriting, the copyist's hand becomes metonymic, right? Because the physical hand and penmanship hand, they're the same name of hand. But in contrast, print and especially type typographical print um, absence or abstracts the body. It's harder to detect the body only, and you can really mostly locate the body in print when there's some sort of error, when you can tell that something went wrong. That said, manuscripts, uh, that manuscript foregrounds the, uh, foregrounds the body very clearly when something goes wrong, uh, when handwriting as well. And so here are a couple of my favorite examples of this. You can really see uh, the frustration um, that would come about when you were copying music by hand and decide that something went completely awry. Manuscript also provides a sense of temporality or of the time that it would take to copy out music, um, exposing the order of the steps in which the copying proceeded. So similar to um, designing a pattern before sewing, paper pages had to be laid out carefully lest the copyist waste valuable space um, through miscalculation. And if the pages were left blank, she then, uh, if the pages were blank initially, she had to line them first, drawing these straight and even staves. Um, and you can see here, this is another example from Lucy Sheldon. She gave up on copying this once she realized she'd, she'd um, lined this with an uneven, with an odd number of staves, which made it the page useless to her purposes because she couldn't copy both the treble and the bass lines for the entire song. Those with the means to do so could purchase specialized instruments for making the lining of pages uh, more easily. And this is a, a music ruling pen or rastrum, which vastly sped up the work. But even mastering that instrument, that, that implement took some practice. 
Uh, this is one of my favorite images from the Watkinson Library of Elizabeth Todd's uh, title page and in, or cover and inside uh, inside cover where she's practicing getting used to this um, uh, finicky implement. When a woman or a man set a quill or a pen to the paper, uh, what I explored is how they were transforming that blank sheet into a space of thought and of sound. Moving the nib across the page, their minute bodily gestures engineered a kind of conversion where what had become, what had been an empty, just visual, blank visual space became one that facilitated or even encouraged sonic audible performance. One might take this for granted. Well-copied music really yields itself to its function as a score that can be read or at least looked at. The power of this transformation though of blank space into musical space becomes very clear when you when there's evidence that it's been thwarted or forsaken, such as scraps of notation and unfinished entries that could not be turned into an actual functional performance. Here's the back, uh, the final page of a manuscript book that was created by two siblings in Connecticut. And it's just a mess of partial notation, song titles and names. So liberated from the need for any recognizable musical syntax, these amateurs doodles contrast with the legibility of other copied, well copied pieces. I became really interested in how amateurs when they wielded their pens or quills didn't always create scores that they could perform from. But when they did, it was because they were successfully reproducing existing works. They weren't composing music, they were copying music. They were transferring the creative effort of a different time and a place into their own time and place. So on the one hand, successful copying was defined by accuracy. And on the other, copy, through copying, amateurs were able to sort of exceed their exemplars contents, especially with doodling, humorous cartoons and random notes. And I became interested in how copying was an imaginative activity that had little to do with, didn't have to have anything to do with musical performance and could just be about creating a visually stimulating book. So copying wasn't simply just copying, it was conjuring a new site for making music. And also just to one final point along this line, copying was also to record, to take something into your heart, to remember and repeat and remind yourself of it. To copy wasn't just to imitate an original, but to transform it, to emulate it or improve it sometimes. So unlike copying a, a piece of text, copying music didn't just stop with the sort of re-externalization of the ideas that had been internalized through intensive reading of the text. Because writing out, because writing out music also facilitated this then subsequent further externalization when the notated music was used in performance. So those are some of the reflections that I worked through as I was writing the book and thinking about what it means to have for, for all of these people to have made these manuscript music books in an era of print. And now I, I'll turn to one of the amateurs I write about in particular, and I'll introduce you to one of the pieces that she copied so you can hear some music. Catherine Ackerley uh, was one of the first amateurs who I met when working on this project. And I, I met her through her a uh, manuscript music book at the American Antiquarian Society when I was a dissertation fellow there 10 years ago. Catherine Ackerley grew up on Long Island. Uh, she was the daughter of a shipbuilder build, ship and she was the recipient of a really excellent education because she was sent to the Moravian Seminary for Girls in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania when she was a teenager in 1792. 
And the Moravians were known for their excellent music education, their excellent education in general. And while a student, Catherine had uh, began to copy this manuscript music book and she had access to the Moravians excellent music library as well as their excellent music instruction and their um, better than average instruments. She also, not being terribly far from him, from Philadelphia, she could have. She seems to have accessed some of her the music that she copied by um, getting it from the emporiums in Philadelphia. Um, she left school when she was sixteen, as was normal, and she married fairly young and for the first time, and lived in New York City. And while she was married to her first husband, James Cock, she uh, continued to copy music probably drawing it from sheet music that she got access to by borrowing it from people or um, um, looking uh, most likely by borrowing it from people. But a lot of this music was being printed and sold in New York City at the time. Her first husband died and she then married Samuel Latham Mitchell, who was a doctor, a professor and became a Republican congressman. Um, in the early 19th century, she went with her husband, her second husband, to Washington when he was serving uh, in, in Congress. And while she was there, she circulated in very elite social circles. She met Thomas Jefferson and writes with great embarrassment about how when she met him, she stepped on his foot, uh, which would be embarrassing um, for anybody, right? But especially embarrassing if you're sort of the new the new uh, person in town, but she also got to know uh, Dolly Madison and was sort of part of this elite social coterie that uh, brought her into um, a very lively and musical political social life. She herself seems to have stopped uh, engaging uh, with, with performance uh, when she was um, in Washington. She doesn't write about uh, playing music anymore and she doesn't copy any more music in that period, um, but she does write in her letters to her sister about how much she enjoyed hearing other Washington wives entertaining uh, themselves and each other uh, politely with their parlor, uh, parlor um, songs. So her manuscript book mostly represents her early life, but it also gives us a sense that this was a facet of culture that she continued to be quite um, invested in even, even later when she was no longer playing. The music she copied is interesting. It's mostly sentimental secular songs that were imported from or perhaps reprinted in the United States. And I would say that for the most part, what she copied, what she gathered was a little more technically challenging than what most amateurs could perform. And I credit that to the excellent education she received in Bethlehem. Um, but all that said, mostly what she copied was um, sentimental songs that were in a style that was completely ubiquitous and preferred by women of her class and standing and training. This repertoire and style found in her music book was overwhelmingly British. And in this era, most white Americans who wished to appear genteel and cosmopolitan did follow the musical trends of Britain, chiefly the commercially successful popular music um, that was heard in the pleasure gardens and urban uh, opera houses. So this was, uh, these were songs that were in English and featured simple, tuneful melodies and easy accompaniments, that's crucial. Um, the songs were often stroph strophic, consisting of several verses set to the same music, and the topics of the songs were sentimental. There's lots of romance, pastoral settings prevail, um, lots of love songs. Uh, in this time period, even though this was the, the popular repertoire, or perhaps because it was the popular repertoire, there was considerable critical bias against this sentimental repertoire. 
So many music critics um, and uh, uh, composers uh, considered this music to be trite and even morally questionable. It was compared, you can maybe think of this as um, how the novel was viewed in the 18th and early 19th century. But what I find really noteworthy is how agreeable this repertoire would have been to an amateur. It's pleasing, it's predictable, it's easy to play, it's really accessible. Um, so, and even this, uh, the sentimentality that drew criticism um, was maybe an emotional, gave it an emotional content that was actually part of its draw for these young women. The stylistic traits I'm describing and the lyrical traits uh, uh, can be, are exemplified in this song, Queen Mary's Lamentation, which appears in Catherine Ackerley's book. It also appeared frequently in print and in other manuscript books. The song was written by the English poet and composer Anne Hunter, but it's commonly uh, ascribed to the Italian-born and London-based composer Tommaso Giordani. And the song's topic, The Lamentation of Queen Mary of Scots, the Catholic cousin of Queen, Mary, of Queen Elizabeth, whose imprisonment and execution captivated writers for centuries, uh, this topic tapped into a broader interest in all things Scottish that coincided with a general nostalgia for a romanticized pastoral past. So in this song, Mary, who by the 18th century had emerged as a sympathetic figure, is depicted as a tragic heroine rather than as a savvy player of cutthroat games of court politics. And the musical style of Queen Mary's Lamentation supports a sentimental depiction of Mary, emphasizing her stoicism and helplessness. It's in a slow triple meter marked Largo or slow in Ackerley's manuscript. You can see that in the upper left-hand corner. And the tune features a Scottish snap style rhythms with an expressive repeated pagiatura or um, anticipatory figure. And all of these lend interest to an otherwise fairly plain tune. The melody serves as a vehicle for the lyrics, which display emotional and perceptual sensitivity. And the song is really simple harmonically as the, both the accompaniment and the melody are quite simple in order to foreground this first person singer uh, singing. Uh, the singer is impersonating Queen Mary, singing in the voice of Queen Mary, starting with the opening line, I sigh and lament in vain, these walls but echo my moan. Comparing her imprisonment to the freedom of the birds who she, sings, she sees outside the prison grate, she describes her own yearning for liberty and the toll her imprisonment has taken with lines like, my, my looks are wild with despair. The song closes with a gothic turn. There's a dire description of the dismal prison, cold and damp, uh, not unlike the weather in Philly today, with owls who from battlements cry uh, into the hollow winds that make her blood run cold. So this is um, Catherine Ackerley's carefully copied out version. As you can see, she includes um, all of the stanzas as well. And uh, we can listen to the first verse of this um, uh, with this recording and the recording will also, uh, Will's going to put a link to the recording in the, um, to make that available to anyone who wants to hear it. Um, and I'm just providing you with the lyrics in case you don't read music. So here's the first verse of this very typical sentimental song. Thank you. 
So this song and the many others like it that amateurs copied is pleasing and uh, in part because it's predictable. The fans of this style could expect technically manageable, musically frictionless, emotionally resonant songs. The reasons this repertoire was criticized for being frivolous and overly emotional were part of its appeal to amateurs. This repertoire helped Americans American amateurs cultivate and engender sensibility in themselves and others through their performance as well. Queen Mary's overwrought lamentation, which, which juxtaposes with this cheerful, light, and repetitive music, offered women like Catherine Ackerley an outlet for self-expression that was desirable because of its sentimentality, its British ped pedigree, and its predictability. That said, there weren't that many other options. I want to make that clear. So besides Protestant sacred music, this was the repertoire that was widely available and was often um, foisted upon these genteel consumers. So Ackerley and her peers really were making use of the, the materials that were available to them. But I don't think that means they weren't taking a great deal of pleasure and enjoyment from it. I thought I would uh, wrap up by introducing you to just a few of the other characters in this book uh, by way of letting you all know about some of the other topics that I discuss, because Catherine Ackerley is just one of the amateurs I write about. Her manuscript book and her life experience allowed me to address the topic of music education and taste and the role of music in women's lives before and after marriage. Other amateurs brought me into contact with different dimensions of early national life. So here are a few of them. We've already met Jonathan Shipley Kopp, but I'm returning to him um, because, uh, his, because he as uh, a touchstone for the early chapters of the book. He was a Puritan descended goldsmith's son in Groton, Connecticut, and he copied his music book uh, uh, right before he embarked on a short-lived career as a sailor. And he turns out he just hated shipboard life he found it coarse and undignified. And uh, this is no surprise when you uh, look at his book, which is full of aphorisms, polite aphorisms and moral, um, moral uh, excerpts from moral essays and drawings and hymns and secular songs. Um, and so his music collection is a way to gain access to the sort of self-conscious display of erudition and sensibility that you could find among young men in this period. Another uh, main character in the book is Sally Brown Hershoff of Providence, Rhode Island, who possessed an uncommonly large music library. Uh, she had 13 print and manuscript books. It was much more often just to have one, or more common just to have one. Music consumerism and exchange was a really important part of her courtship and became a key way that she connected with her family, um, including her five children. And her courtship was quite protracted. Uh, her father did not approve of her, her match with Charles Hershoff and uh, only consented to their wedding when she threatened to elope after an eight-year courtship. Um, and what I like about her is that you can trace music collecting across quite a long life because she continued to be interested in music into the 1840s. But here is an early example from one of her first manuscript books, particular uh, song is um, Espy's favorite song. You can see that in the upper right hand corner. So through Sally Brown, I explored topics of music consumerism and music as a luxury good, uh, as well as music in courtship and music in families. 
as well as some of the more um, problematic ethical sides of how amateur musicians would fund their musical endeavors. Because Sally Brown's father was John Brown, the slave trader of Providence, Rhode Island, who um, famously uh, insisted on continuing to trade slaves even after it became um, illegal. So it's from the, it's wealth from the uh, from that transatlantic trade that helped fund her genteel amateur music making. Other characters include Daniel and Harriet Wadsworth. We only see Daniel here, not Harriet. I don't have a portrait of her um, on this slide. Um, but Daniel and Harriet were a brother and sister from Hartford, Connecticut, who shared a manuscript music book. And their father, Jeremiah, shown here, was fixated on making sure that all of his children were raised with the best possible manners, impeccable handwriting, and excellent taste. And their shared manuscript book reflects this. Um, it reflects their efforts to satisfy him. For instance, you can see here, this is their copy of a song, um, the song, the aria, Total Eclipse, from the uh, George Frederick Handel Oratorio Samson. Handel was very prestigious in elite music. I did not, I found it very infrequently in these manuscript music books. Um, and it speaks to the aspirations of the siblings to please their father and present themselves very genteelly that they copied um, a sizable amount of Handel's music. At the same time, when uh, their manuscript book really shows, again, the importance of these, of music as, uh, as a bridge for familial attachment. And when Harriet became sick with tuberculosis at the age of 23, the 21-year-old Daniel took her to Bermuda in the futile hope that it would help, but she died there. And he later wrote in his copybook poems about illness and death, including one about a young woman who sings. The embodied performance of taste and the importance of sensibility in these familial attachments really come through their experience and through their manuscript book. So I hope that this presentation is giving you a sense of the musical and cultural and material world that I explore in Cultivated by Hand. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts and any questions you have in the conversation to come. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Glenda. That was wonderful. And I love when we can integrate a little bit of multimedia. That feels like we're really drawing upon one of the very minimal affordances of doing these things <laughs> online. Um, so I invite all of you to uh, submit your questions through Q&A. Uh, you can also alternatively raise your hand virtually. Of course, if you're raising your hand physically, I'm not going to see it. But if you raise your hand virtually, I will give you uh, speaking privileges. Um, I just wanted to start with something that I thought was really interesting, which is the sort of aspirational qualities of these, um, of these composition books. And I'm curious to know, looking across the duration of your project, like, what did you learn about what people were aspiring to be? Like, how they were aspiring to self-fashion? Yeah, so that was, um, that's a great question. And it plays into some of the materials that I chose to ignore. Um, because there's a sizable body of manuscript books that are just full of military music. They mm. were used uh, in, there's a lot of them from the Revolutionary War period. Um, and there's a, they reflect the sort of utilitarian and of course patriotic use and function, very functional use of music. And so one of the um, things that I decided to focus on was not just, not all kinds of music. And I also don't write a lot about um, books that were just used entirely for um, church, for sacred singing. Um, I did focus on this sort of 
genteel and cosmopolitan self-fashioning because I saw that it was of a piece with what some cultural historians had been exploring about the import, like um, Catherine Kelly or even uh, more, um, what would you say, traditional works like Richard Bushman. So scholars who explored the importance of taste and gentility in this pivotal time um, after the American Revolution when US citizens were seeking to demonstrate their capacity to be culturally on par with Europe. Mm -hmm. So what I find, so I, I sort of decided to filter out those more um, functional uh, uh, utilitarian manuscript music books, although I think they're fascinating. And the military ones say so much about music and the construction of masculinity and military valor and all of that. But um, I decided to focus in mostly on, on uh, these more genteel um, uh, self-presentations. And what I found, I'm not sure I could say I found change over time uh, so much as I found how, um, I guess, no, I can say the change over time is that some of them gave up. Like some of them would aspire for a while and keep these manuscript music books and then just stop doing it, which is very, um, relatable to anyone who's picked up a hobby thinking it will make them into something. Maybe it's wrong to say it's relatable because they lived in a totally different world than ours. Um, but still what we see is there are some people for whom this was um, quite almost avocational and some for whom it was quite um, uh, uh, more vexatious to engage with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so those, those were some of the thoughts I had, uh, especially when, um, looking through the ones, I became very attached to the ones that showed mistakes uh, because they're so exposing as any, any, any musician knows how humiliating it is to make a mistake of any kind. So. Yeah, and, and, and just briefly on that, like were there particular uh, musicians that, be, that sort of fell in and out of vogue over the course of your project? Um, you mean over the course of the time period? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, because it's, uh, yes, the short answer is yes. I'll, and I don't write a ton about them, but there were certain US born sort of um, self-taught composers uh, whose works were very popular in the beginning of the time period that I write about. And they became um, increasingly unpopular as their sort of rough hewn style that made them emblematic of American independence in the 1770s, 80s then came to see, make them seem more like country bumpkins who didn't know how to compose in a way that would be reputable, see, heard as being reputable across the ocean. So a, a well, well known to uh, American musicologists uh, is William Billings, who is one such hymnist. I saw some of his hymns in some of these uh, manuscript books, but very few in the ones that are copied after the 1780s. That's great. Question from Michael Norris asks, uh, do any contemporary groups specialize in performing or presenting the type of music in the book? Um, there are. That's a great question. Um, and uh, the I think it's called the Colonial Music Institute um, has done a ton of recordings of music from this time period. Um, so that's David Hildebrand's group. Um, but uh, Although for the most part, that mu the, the music that groups have specialized in is actually the repertoire that was composed and made popular uh, in the United States. So like political songs um, and patriotic songs. So more, um, less highbrow than some of the repertoire that I write about in this book. And in some ways, the music that I write about in this book um, 
and has been, it has really suffered, the, uh, its, its legacy has really suffered from the criticisms that were leveled against it in the 18th century and in the early 19th century, that it was silly, that it was trivial and frivolous and not substantial. Um, all of that has made it not particularly popular, um, even though it is complete, when you think about how often sort of domestic scenes of genteel music making are represented in say novels, like if any of you read Jane Austen, you've encountered these kinds of scenes, you know, it's, it's popularly understood to be extremely important culturally but um, its musical value has been um, uh, ignored. And I don't actually argue that it's musically so important that we, I don't, I'm not saying we have to resuscitate this music and you know, uh, make a, a, a claim that it sh everyone should be listening to it. Um, just as I don't think anyone would say you know, that everyday popular music of the 20th century, not all of that needs to be resuscitated either. Like some of it's just enjoyable to the people who lived in that time period. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's time to stop shaming this repertoire. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really interested when you were talking about the sort of mass popularity of this because I come from mid studies and there's like a whole thing around sentimental novels being sort of like, you know, the amateur novel, you know, I mean, Hawthorne's, you know, decrying it as the, what is it, the, the mob of mad scribbling women, you know, so there's a gender dismissal there. And I'm curious to know, like, what exactly is the scale of these, um, these manuscript um, copies? Like, how many are there out there that you were surveying in the course of this project? So by the time I, I, I had to cut myself off because they continue to um, pop up uh, basically every time someone uh, digs through an attic in New England, they seem to find one of these. They were, they were really common. Um, but I stopped once I'd seen um, like about uh, 250. Uh, and I worked with, I sort of manually worked with, got my hands on about a hundred of those, but others of them live in digital facsimiles, or I read about them in um, catalogs. So that's the number. But again, that's, I, I think that's a artificially low number. And I will say I limited, I ended up limiting myself to the Northeast, basically from Pennsylvania to Maine, um, because I recognized that the modes of the intersection of class and gentility and wealth really was working quite differently in the South. And I, um, so I just decided to make this a more focused uh, study, but um, I don't know how that compares to the sort of literary scribblers. I'd be curious to know if that's a similar, like, and then I guess that number doesn't really make sense without a proportional number of what printed music was circulating. And this was a, pro a question I was never able to answer because we have lots of evidence about how much music was being printed in the United States, but nothing, no one has done a systematic study to see how much was being imported. Hmm. And most of it was being imported. When I would look through binders volumes, you know, uh, bound volumes of printed sheet music, a lot of it was not printed in the United States. A lot of it was, but not all of it. Um, uh, so we don't know how much of it was circulating, how much imported music was circulating. So it's really hard to get a sense of the proportions. Um, and of course, you know, if you don't bind it, these are basically, basically sheet music is ephemera. Um, so it just, it just doesn't last. Yeah. But it's a domestic production, which is interesting in juxtaposition to this sort of transatlantic trade of the printed sheet music. 
Um, incidentally, uh, Michael Norris notes part two, the South. <laughs> I would love to give a shout out to um, my uh, uh, musicology colleague, Candace Bailey, who is, if you want part two, the South, Look at the excellent books and articles of Candace Bailey. She has, um, she really, she's doing really interesting research about um, class and race and gentility in these kinds of material culture um, realms. Um, most recently, she's been uncovering the prevalence of, um, the, or the really just the existence of genteel, free black uh, women who were participating in these kinds of the same similar kinds of cultural realms that I'm exploring in my book, she finds them in the antebellum South, which is just fascinating. There's just a lot that we don't know about this, um, about these music cultures. I'm going to drop a link into her faculty page at she's Duke, Duke University. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. She's, she's at Duke, right? No, uh, she's at NCCU. NCCU. Okay. Well, I'll double check that. We have a question from Jack, from Jack McCarthy, who asks, any Philadelphia amateurs of note in your book? Um, so the Philadelphia amateur who, of note, who I do not include in my book is, uh, Francis Hopkinson, um, who's, uh, who was a, uh, you know, he's a founding father of the United States. Um, he was a huge music fan who, um, left a vast music, music record, both printed and manuscript music that is actually in the Kislak Special Collections at the University of Pennsylvania. And I think it might be, it's, it's partly because I wanted to make this a generational study to understand, as I elaborate in the book, I really wanted to understand what it was like to come of age in the New Republic. People, uh, these are women and men. I study with, I wrote about women and men whose parents were patriots and fought in the war. And so what does it mean? What kinds of pressures did that put on this rising generation? Um, and Francis Hopkinson was not part of that generation. He was the previous generation. But he is, I would say he's the most noteworthy amateur musician in Philadelphia. Out of curiosity, like, what did the library company have for you? Because we specialize, of course, in printed material. Um, this is a manuscript project by and large. What did you find in our collections? So I, the, I found uh, this, it's a great question, because uh, it didn't end up getting into my book. But at the library company, I became obsessed with the appearance of printed music, like pieces of music that would just be put into magazines. So the 18th century, early 19th century, it's a period of periodicals, of magazines, um, belletristic, you know, belle lettre magazines that have like some essays, some engravings of maps, some, you know, political opinions, some poetry, and then sometimes just slotted in a piece of music. And it clearly, it had to, because of my interest, as you learned tonight, my interest in printing music technology, the, this music was printed usually using engraving. So different, different technology than the, the um, magazines, the text was printed with typography. So it really was like, they went, they like, it was someone's concerted effort to put music in, into these belletristic magazines, which then uh, thanks to the LCP's collections, including like, um, periodicals like from that, like the European Magazine and London Review, I looked at a lot of that. Uh, and it was just full, of, so imported magazines, but then uh, they were just full of music. Each, each issue would have a piece of music. Um, and I didn't end up writing about, and then American periodicals followed suit into the same thing. 
and perhaps because the music itself is not it's not remarkable there's no like hidden Beethoven gems so there's no no um, musicologist has gone through to look at this but I have sort of ticking away in the back of my mind a desire I've been I've been wanting to return to this to explore this question more fully um, because it really uh, puts songs more in the context of like miscellaneous entertaining knowledge which I think is the right context for them yeah well I mean it sounds like it starts with a journal article and uh <laughs> Yeah. Of course, we would always welcome you back as soon as we're able to accommodate more folks. I would love to come back. Um, very briefly, we've got one minute left. What is your favorite doodle that you came across in these books? Oh, um, I can't remember if I showed it in this presentation, but there's a doodle that a schoolboy made of um, two heads. It's it's obviously a school book uh, because of um, the exercises that are in it. And he has a school book of two heads sort of looking at each other. Um, little like bobbleheads, and I, this is totally projecting on my part, but I like to imagine that those were his, um, those were uh, cartoons of his teachers. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Glenda. This sounds like a fabulous book. I put the link in the chat. I encourage all of you to support a scholar and a university press and purchase it directly from that link. Um, and of course, uh, next week, we'll be joined by Jordan Stein, who's going to be talking about his new book, When Novels Were Books. Thank you again, Glenn. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone.